Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Hi, and welcome to Opening Soon on Heritage Radio Network. We are your hosts, Jenny Goodman and Alex McCreary. Opening Soon is a weekly show that will walk you through the steps of opening a restaurant through conversations with some of the world's greatest chefs, restaurateurs, and the vendors that help take their business from just an idea to opening soon. Jenny and I have been in the hospitality business for over 25 years. I've been fortunate enough to be part of opening one restaurant that still stands today and humbled enough to have owned one restaurant named Goods that lasted less than six months. When launching Goods, we failed to create a business plan before jumping in. We didn't bother with a partnership agreement, and we missed some major components of our income statement. Our experience with Goods is a big reason we feel we're the ones that can ask the questions. Basically, we need answers. Aside from our own first-hand experience inside restaurants, including one pretty epic fail, we are currently the founders of Tillit NYC, a hospitality workwear brand that has proudly outfitted over 4,000 restaurants and counting since launching our business in 2012. We are so fortunate to witness many restaurants come to life. Being part of that journey is one of the best parts of our job, and we want to share that feeling and all those lessons that can be learned with all of you. Our goal is that this podcast will help bridge the gap between the teacher and the student, help alleviate some of the risk when you're opening your restaurant, and offer you some lessons that you might have been looking for when building your business plan. So the first 12-episode season will sequentially take you through the steps of your business plan, from choosing your partners to nailing design and to getting those doors actually open. We will be picking the brains of industry leaders, including Chef Missy Robbins, Camilla Marcus, and Steven Satterfield, just to name a few. So if you're in the process of building a business plan, just starting culinary school, improving or expanding in your current business, or just fascinated by what it takes to get the restaurant open, we hope this podcast will entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey from idea to opening soon. Follow the journey on Heritage Radio and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at WeAreOpeningSoon and at TillItNYC. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome multi-award winning chef and restaurateur, Ozma Khan. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Ozma about her innovative restaurant, Darjeeling Express, her perspective on women in cooking, and we'll hear Ozma's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. We're returning to our series on top women chefs in London, and today we'll be talking to a pioneer who is definitely a kindred spirit of Julia's. Julia did many things that had never been done before. 
She made a groundbreaking cookbook on French food happen, which forever changed the way Americans thought about eating and cooking. She turned the cooking show into something that appealed to a really wide audience. She took her passion for the value of cooking to anybody who would listen. And she was very good at getting people's attention. We all have a greater appreciation about the merits of butter, thanks to Julia. Ultimately, it was her conviction that brought everyone along. In that vein, we're continuing our spotlight on the ever-growing number of very accomplished chefs in London who are women. With the increased attention on restaurant industry gender dynamics, we felt it important to continue to highlight women chefs' accomplishments, innovations, and to add this perspective to our global conversation about what we're cooking and eating. Last season, in episode 45, we learned from chef and restaurateur Sky Gingel of London Spring. Today, we're delighted to have Ozma Khan, whose restaurant, Darjeeling Express, quickly became a sensation, first as a pop-up back in 2015, and then in its permanent home in London, Soho. And like Spring, it's frequently on the list of best must-try London restaurants. Originally from Kolkata and trained as a lawyer, Ozma's path to cooking is far from typical. You may have seen her profiled in season six of Netflix Chef's Table series. Ozma's story and purpose goes beyond that of just another rising star female chef. Like Julia, Ozma had a vision of what she should do, even if it meant going against established norms, and is now on a mission to fulfill it. Welcome to the podcast, Ozma. Thank you very much. So glad to have you here in London. So Julia had her epiphany moment about food at a lunch famously documented in Rouen. Where was yours? And how, how did that lead you to Darjeeling Express? Mine was a moment which I, at that point, didn't even realize the significance of it. But it made me feel that there was something unique that I could do. It was my sister's wedding, and I was sent into the kitchen, which normally I wouldn't have gone into, to expedite the biryanis, the dishes that were coming out, because the kind of important people had sat down for the wedding uh, feast, and the biryani hadn't turned up. And I saw for the first time the biryani pot being opened, and that aroma, and my head chef who was there, he's, an, he's a family chef, and he's been, he was in my family before I was born. Uh, he just looked at me, he took out some grains of rice from the pot and put it on my hand and said, this is your destiny. You're going to be one of the greatest biryani cooks. I see it in your eyes. And I stood there, I had never cooked before. And I realized that, you know, he is so amazing. He's the best in our family. And I stood there, you know, with the, with the aromas of the biryani coming through. And I realized that, yes, I will be. One day I will be. So that was my moment. And once I started on the food journey, throughout I used to remember this moment again and again. And the last two pages of my cookbook, which I had held back to dedicate to my mother, I've actually dedicated to him, that cook. Wow, that's a very powerful story. And so do you think he saw in your face that you were having the sensory experience? Is yes, that- yes. I think he probably saw in my eyes the wonder and amazement. You cannot cook unless it brings you that level of joy and amazement. And also, uh, you know, the sense that this is something so beautiful and wonderful. You need to really fall in love with that dish that you're cooking. I think you saw that in my eyes. 
And w- what stage of your life was this? Had you already moved to London no, or this was I, before? I, this was before I got married. So I was I was still, you know, completely unaware of how to cook. I love to eat. And I think that's probably why I learned to cook so quickly because mm. I was very aware of how dishes were mm. made. Mm. So yeah, it's that moment, but that moment has stayed in my soul uh forever. Uh I I was 17, 16 or 17. And uh yeah, and it just I never forgot that. Because it was also his look in his eyes when he gave me those grains of rice. And I felt that, you know, it's it's that hot grain just come out of this pot. You know, each grain perfect. And every time I make biryani, I put the grain on my hands and I, I relive that moment. So, yeah, it was it had a significant impact on me. And so take us, obviously, this that's kind of the backstory of why the biryani moment in, in Darjeeling Express is yes. like a, a big thing, which is in the Netflix episode. So tell, tell us, for those who haven't seen it or haven't been to your restaurant, how biryani features at Darjeeling Express. Well, we do biryani like we do in our family feasts or wedding. All the tables are joined together. The food is served out in a huge platter. And this is a dish that many restaurants have, but they do it in the untraditional way. The way I make it, I put in, I have to cook for 100 people. I don't know how to make it for less than that. Because I need that (laughs) depth of the rice. Mm. Because the rice on the top is completely parched and dry. It's had all the steam coming through. And you need to mix it. And that contact of the dry, completely, you know, arid rice, mixing with the with the wet rice at the bottom, that's when every grain becomes perfect. Mm. It's a it's an art getting mm-hmm. this dish together because once you put in the layers of meat and potatoes and rice, you can't even look at it because you sealed it with dough mm. and you stuck the lid. This is when, you know, it's about faith. You need to know that you've done the right thing. And it's instinct. It's just knowing how much liquid you put. You can't measure anything, you know, so you put in the spices with your hands. This looks about right. This feels right. So it really is a, is a dish that is made when you actually stood and watched someone like my wonderful cook, Haji Saab. Uh, he, I watched, I stood by him and used to watch him make biryani, never ever thinking that I could replicate it because it's considered to be almost this kind of impossible dish to make. You know, it's made by men over charcoal and wood. And uh, I've never seen a a female in my family make biryani. So it's very unusual. It's this kind of almost this hallowed dish made in big feasts or weddings. It's almost sacred rice for us. Uh, And women didn't make it. So even your mother, who you've credited as as teaching you a lot about cooking, she doesn't make biryani this way. No, she doesn't know how to make biryani. My mother doesn't know how to make it. And what's the other, what's the sort of cheat way to make biryani? The cheat way to make biryani, uh, and you know, I'm sure that uh, I will be forgiven by all the restaurants who <laughs> For do For giving it. their secrets away. <laughs> so it's, it's to take a, take a pot that you can put into the oven, you mix some meat with gravy, put some rice on top of it, uh, seal it and put it into the oven for a bit, and then mix it. So the little bit of the gravy mix into the rice and gets absorbed. And it's kind of a biryani, but it's not how biryani is supposed to be. And... Because it's a common feature of most Indian restaurant menu. Does it is it regional? Is it regional in India, or it comes from everywhere? And there are regional sort of ways of doing it. There are regional ways to do it. Biryani is a, something you'll get versions of from right up to the north, uh, down to the south, where they make a super spicy biryani uh, with fish because they're coastal people. 
So there's a huge variety of biryanis made in India. Some have potatoes, some don't. Some are very spicy, some are very mild. The one that I make is probably the more traditional one, which is closer to the original biryani that was made in the palaces uh, and has the, all the Mughlai spices. It's very mild, it's very fragrant, it's layered, it's not super spicy. And it has, uh, so it's very close to the Lucknow biryani, mm-hmm. but in Bengal, where I grew up and mm. my mother comes from, in Calcutta, we add potatoes. I see. And so you said it's done in your supper club. So if someone, you know, someone in Nebraska gets on a plane to come to Darjeeling Express in London, will it be on the menu? No, unfortunately okay, not. Okay. We have a lot of disappointed visitors, yes, yes. Americans who've seen it. Uh, but it's clear it's not on our menu because it's not online. And we do have supper club days when everybody has to come because everyone has to eat at the same time. Yeah, it's one Once, sitting. One sitting. It's one sitting. When we open that pot and you eat to your heart's consent because I think that, you know, my mother used to always say every grain of rice has your name in it. If it's not your destiny to have it, <laughs> it'll fall out of your lips, but you will not have it. So I will not decide how much you will eat. Mm. So biryani is not plated. Mm. It is served in a kind of abundant, mm. uh, lavish way. You help yourself to how much you want. Because it's that kind of dish. It's almost sacred. You know, you, yeah, you yeah. serve this dish that you've that you know has taken several hours to make. Yeah. And it's or runs on faith because really you can't tweak it, you can't, mm. you know, and it can be a disaster. Mm. You know, it can really go wrong. Because you, you there's no way of knowing. And you're working with three different things, the meat, the potatoes, and the rice. Mm. Who on that given day, something may just go wrong. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm glad we've clarified that it's a special because the supper clubs run not super often, right? No, no, like they one, don't run super often, and they uh, unfortunately I was not, uh, I had not actually understood the entire application of what it meant to be on chef's table, <laughs> so I had not closed dates in in my booking system, which would allow me to have supper clubs. <laughs> By the time I realized, um, you were booked it through the end of the year. <laughs> yeah, so there are not that many days left. So yeah. that is the only reason I really would like to. It's a beautiful experience. Yeah, yeah. And I think I want to share this beautiful dish that, you know, I feel is a gift I have. And I would love to feed people. I'm just stuck right now because I just I don't have enough dates. But I've got very clever and I've got dates all lined up for next year. So anyone wanting to come next year will find lots of dates okay. on the website. And so they can book and, you know, it's pre, you have to prepay yeah. your book. And you come in there and you sit with uh, people on a shared table. Obviously, you know, your own group or your couple will sit yeah, together. Yeah, yeah. And it's a wonderful experience. You know, I think everybody chats to each other. There's a lot of uh, pushing and shoving of food up and down. And it's great. Well, you're bringing an Indian celebratory experience for the, I mean, if you've been to an Indian wedding, it's a similar thing, but not everyone has that. Yeah. And the thing is that, you know, I, and the the numbers of people who come uh, with greatest joy are Indians because the food in Indian weddings is the best thing. The worst thing are relatives. And the dancing. And the dancing. But the worst thing are relatives. You need to, <laughs> you need to deal with yeah, aunts. Yeah, but, and for me, every yeah. time I go to a wedding, they say, God, how fat are you? Uh, I say, okay. And <laughs> nice then they to tell see you. you. Yeah, nice to, and then they say, oh, you don't paint your nails. How, what are you doing as a cook? You should be making money. Do you have a Mercedes? This is, I mean, Indian aunties are the nightmare. So you need to, so to get that biryani, you need to deal with, with aunts uh. on the table. 
I sometimes think even the biryani is not worth it. <laughs> so for to deal with, and I think so many people can relate to this. Yeah, yeah. You go to a family wedding, everyone yeah, yeah. says, "Oh, you're so fat. I didn't yeah. recognize you." <laughs> and when I didn't have children, oh yeah. my god, that was a nightmare, you know, mm. because I was studying. Mm. So first seven years of my married life, Couldn't I didn't do have anything children. right. Everyone came and said. Are you just fat or are you pregnant? Oh, I'm just God. fat, I'm not pregnant. <laughs> no. And you think, you know, how can you say these things? But, you know, Indian women think this is fine. Yeah. And relatives are the worst thing, yeah, yeah. you know, to deal with. Yeah. Much as I love my aunts yeah, yeah. and all my extended yeah. family. Yeah. And you see all these countless number of people who all claim to be related to you. <laughs> and children who you don't recognize. <laughs> and everyone's offended that you didn't recognize that child. <laughs> you haven't seen them in three years, you know, they've changed. Yeah. But that's the kind of, you know, you need to, go through this entire, you know, difficult process to get to the biryani. You, you, you come to my supper club, it's paid. You just have to pay, prepay. That's yeah, the only thing. All you need to do is rock up. You rock up, you eat, and no one is asking you your dress size, and no one's asking you how many children you have. It's the best thing. Oh, uh, well, liberating. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Fascinating. So I want to talk to you about um, I was going to talk to you about your whole story of getting there, but you've actually talked about that a lot in a lot of places. So I'm glad we're doing a different direction. But let, let's talk about because I think there's something really special about Darjeeling Express, which is your all women kitchen yes. and how that came about. So tell us more about that. I'm particularly interested because I think I've heard you talk a couple times. There's, I think, mostly benefits, but there are challenges because it's a totally different model yeah. than any stand, even maybe a standard Indian restaurant. Yes. So tell, tell us more about how that came about and how it works. Well, definitely compared to standard uh, Indian restaurant, we're very different. A standard Indian restaurant would only have male chefs who probably learn to cook, not in their families, but in culinary school. And that is a production line cooking. It's like building the Ford car. They, they cracked it. They worked out how to make, you know, lots of dishes, uh, you know, batch cooking. This is not our style of cooking. Indian food is made fresh. It's made, uh, you know, just one dish. You don't have this idea of sources, you know, being added on to things. If, when I go into an Indian restaurant, I'm just amazed at the number of items. Clearly all been made in advance. We have five items, and in fact one is just being taken off because we're struggling a bit with numbers. We have four items on our menu. And no one ever complains because each item is individual. It's layered, it's spiced to be eaten in a particular way. So I didn't set out. I mean, it's very easy now for me to claim that I set out to have <laughs> Invented an, 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 an all-female kitchen. And this is, you know, I was this pioneer. No, I was not. I just ended up, they, they picked me because in some ways, when women gathered in my kitchen, in my supper clubs, in this house, we, there was a sense of, of peace. We'd done this before. And even though they didn't understand the kind of food they were cooking with me, 99% of Indian food is prep and washing up. <laughs> it's that 1% is this magic masala moment where you know, you're putting the spices together, you're estimating how much liquid you're putting into your biryani, you're guessing this is the amount of saffron I need to put in, the maize, the nutmeg. That 1%, the, the time it takes is 1%. It's the most important 1%, of course. But the prep is so important. But they've done this in their own homes. So I didn't feel that I needed to explain. When I had occasionally worked with men, they would ask me, how long will this take? And I said, I don't know. When it's ready, <laughs> it's ready. Because we were not, I wasn't taught to cook that way. Mm -hmm. We're just taught to cook in this you know, classic 
The Urdu word is andaz, which is estimate. You estimate everything. I mean, I don't have a weighing scale. I don't have a measuring spoon. Uh, I, I feel like, you know, giving myself a medal for having written a cookbook where it all worked, the recipes. <laughs> and that's because, you know, my, 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 I was helped. Yeah. So all the things that were in my, in my hand mm. were taken down and measured. Mm. But all these women cook just like this. Mm. We pick the masalas and the spice up with our hands. If, you, if I had picked up, you know, some cumin and you told me, is this half a teaspoon mm. or one tablespoon? I'd be lost. But I bet, I've noticed this with all kinds of chefs I've worked with, chefs get very good at picking similar amounts. And oftentimes a chef can eyeball it and you can measure what's in their hand and you'll either get an exact teaspoon or really close yeah, to it. Yeah, so the thing is that that's the kind of cooking that we do. And I've you know, slowly ended up with a kind of group of women who would come here and help me in supper clubs. And then when I went to the pop-up in 2015, uh, they were still working as nannies and cleaners and uh, you know, cooks in other people's houses, but they would then come in and we managed to organize an entire rota where people took a day off and were able to come in and help me. And when the restaurant opened as well, it made sense, you know, and I was criticized heavily by a lot of people who came in at that time saying, oh, you have no idea how hard it is to run a restaurant. You know, very negative comments that you're going to struggle, get in professional chefs. We did struggle. We struggled a lot in the pop-up. We struggled the first few weeks in the restaurant it was not easy but anyone being honest who's opened a restaurant particularly if it's their first restaurant will struggle in possibly not the same way yeah. but it's very hard to get a restaurant firing on all cylinders from day one no matter whether you have five professional trained chefs in it yeah but the thing is that you know the feeling that everybody was making me you know too conscious about was that oh you have all women they're not professionals they're not skilled i hated that you know, my, well, I my would think heart, it would have been motivating to yeah, say, no, no, you're no, wrong. I was like, you know, not only are we going to be good, we're going to be so great, you're going to hear our names all the time. Mm. I really wanted us to succeed. It wasn't about us anymore. The restaurant is not about me as well. It's for all, it's to honor all these women for centuries who went to their graves thinking they're not skilled. In my culture, we do not honor women who cook. It is considered to be something that you just do. It is not considered a job. We don't, our women don't come on the table and eat with the men. Our food is patriarchal. You know, this whole idea of hot, you know, chapatis coming to the table, uh, rice, you know, being fried. The food that we have in, my, in South Asia is designed that someone in the kitchen is making this all last minute. Mm. Not that you cook this big roast and you bring it to the table and everybody sits around and gets meat and two veg. Mm. That's not Indian food. Mm. That's not the food of our subcontinent. Mm. And this whole kind of service from the kitchen meant that women never often didn't eat with the heads of the family, with the men in their lives. And they ate later. And it, it demeaned us, all of us South Asian women. And I just wanted other South Asian women to see us. And even on very hard nights, I was absolutely convinced not only were we going to win, we were going to be the best because I was driven by this whole thing. All of us were, that we were challenged, but we were on stage. We were performing not for ourselves, but for all the silent voices behind us, the shadows who stayed in the shadows. Now this was our moment in the spotlight, but this is not us. It is all the entire generations of South Asian women, my grandmother, my mother, all these women who cooked, 
but never felt that they got any honor for that. You know, my cousin told me, I called me Ratatouille when I said that I wanted to cook. And I said, fine, you know, but I'm going to be the best Ratatouille ever. Because it really, you know, it's so ingrained, this bias. You're referencing Ratatouille, the movie. The movie, yeah, 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 the the, the mouse that cooked. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it, you know, it's seen as, as, as not worthy. And especially if you have studied Mm. Uh, and you're a lawyer, then it's even more defies all kinds of belief that yeah. you know you're educated, you're married to a liberal person who would allow you to do anything. <laughs> so all my cousins no. were like, you know, you're married to such a liberal man, you're crazy. Because I understand the subtext was yeah. that you know their expectation in big joint families was to cook yeah. and to provide beautiful meals and feasts for other people. Well, that's like I said, you were a kindred spirit of Julia. She came from an affluent background. That was not what she was gone to Smith College to do. She was married to a very liberal man. Although I do think in some ways being married to a liberal man does enable you to to forward a different path maybe more easily. A, yes. a less liberal person would say, no, you sh- you're going to be a lawyer and you should be a lawyer. No, I, I think I, I, you know, much as I hate giving him any credit, <laughs> I hate giving my husband credit, but I think it was only possible because of being married to someone like him. Because it didn't make sense. You know, especially if you come from an Asian background. Everyone forces their kids to go to law school or become engineers and doctors. It is the DNA of South Asia. This is how you succeed. You become a professional, and these are the professions you should be. The fact that I went to law school and did pretty well, and then to make things more difficult, he was an academic, so understands that this is an option for me when I did my PhD, uh, he tolerated and allowed me to do this is because I was married to a liberal man. If I was married to someone else, I think the whole story would have been different. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about the the other women who mostly came from, or almost all came from less affluent, less yes. educated backgrounds than you. But how, how have they perceived this whole transformation or do they feel as a transformation or how what's their perspective now sort of going on this journey with you? I think one of them said that in my autumn of my life, I feel a spring returning. That is so beautiful because the average age in my kitchen is 50. The women are all 50 and they never, the rags to riches story doesn't happen for most people. Mm. And they, not only are they come from very deprived backgrounds, they also, there's a huge class factor because, you know, in India, there is this terrible caste system. People of different classes don't sit together and eat. This may happen, you know, you got into Oxbridge and you came from a working class background, you know, you got a job as an investment banker, you wear your suit and your shoes and you are then dining with the great and good. Mm. This happens in the West in very small sectors Mm. where this huge class movement happens. It doesn't happen in India Mm. because you are born with a name that is stamped on you and you stay where you are. Mm. That is what the caste system is divided. Mm. There is no social mobility. You know, people are don't even allow their children to marry outside their caste. Mm. So this is the background from which these women come. The fact that they could become something totally unconnected to what their family has been, their own aspirations, their own training. And in the beginning, all of them were worried about, you know, sending money home. Because they're looking after 15 to 20 people. This is a classic immigrant story. You send your entire money home and you walk around in inappropriate shoes and coats that have holes in them. You don't want to spend it because you think, you know, if I save one pound, 
you know, imagine what my child can do with one pound. That was the mindset. And, you know, the day the whole lot went and bought bags from Prada <laughs> and they bought boots, I wept because they had suddenly, that shift had happened. Mm. They invested in themselves mm. because suddenly they realized that they also had a value. It's not the kind of trivial thing that they went and bought something nice for themselves. Yeah. I understand what that signal is. It's the mind shift. It's the mind shift. And that, that look in their eyes, that they're worth it. You know, any success I had, any money that I, own, that I earned would be worth nothing. I mean, to see that, that is what makes me powerful. I cannot be free if women around me are in chains. My freedom is worth nothing. When I saw these women, you know, going out and buying things from themselves, you know, feeling empowered that they sent, because, you know, of course, they're earning very well now. They send money home. But they felt that this is, you know, we also are something. We count. I mean, it's just so rewarding. So whatever happened to Dajani Express, and I'm grateful that we've been successful, the fact that I could change this whole, the mindset of so many women. And, you know, I know this is a ripple effect because it's, you know, expanding. We have more people coming in. Their friends are coming in and they're talking about other things they want to do. Ambition is not, you're not born with ambition in 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 my culture, you know, women, South Asian women, from the day we are born, we are, our birth is lamented. So we are crushed from that moment. You don't dream of flying because people don't think you can, but all these women are. Well, and no one also in that culture and most cultures would expect you would find uplift and liberation through cooking because yes. it's usually considered, you know, drudgery. Or- and it's, it's considered manual labor. It's considered it is, well, it is Yeah, it is, it's tough. <laughs> Physically, it's tough. And, you know, all of us, you know, I'm turning 50 this year. Uh, I, you know, I, I, Americans will not understand this, but in cricket, you have two innings. <laughs> and you come out in the second innings. And I've, you know, I'm turning 50. This is my second innings. I intend to hit every ball out of the park. I'm not wasting my time. I'm not going to get a chance to bat again. Mm. This is my final time I go out to play. So I'm intent to win. And I and this it's a team thing. If I did really well, but everyone else failed, my team loses. I need my team to win. I need everyone to go out there to bat with the same mindset. And they all are. And it's great to work with a team of such, you know, sometimes, you know, I say, oh my God, you know, we have like 200 covers today between lunch and dinner. And everyone's thinking, oh great, let's start. It's incredible. They actually are motivated, driven, and excited by challenge that they have to feed so many people. I'm just in awe of them. You know, they're in their 50s and 60s. I have two grandmothers working for me. And the, the power, the physical strength that comes from that kitchen is, is, you know, I am just amazed that they found it in them, in what they thought was the autumn of their life, the strength. Uh, to to work this hard. It's a wonderful story. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And uh, we've already gotten into talking to Ozma about perspectives on opportunities for women in the food world. And we're going to come right back to talk more about that. We'll be right back. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. 
The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Welcome back. We're talking to groundbreaking chef, restaurateur, and cookbook author, Ozma Khan, as part of our series on top women chefs in London. So let's get back to the conversation we were already starting about um, Ozma's point of view on the current landscape for women in the professional food world. And you, we were talking specifically about the sort of liberation and purpose that your all women kitchen ha- have found. And I sort of wanted to ask, I didn't more than sort of, I wanted to ask you more about, and you've mentioned this before, you've taken some flack actually for not being professionally trained and that you should get maybe a professionally trained man in your kitchen. And so do you think that not having come up through the often very brutal world of male dominated restaurant kitchens you know, obviously it gives you a different perspective on the hurdles. But what have you found? Do you think that's made all the difference, the fact that you didn't know those limitations or what's been the the kind of deciding factor, I think, for you? I'm very lucky that I didn't have to go through what I know a lot of women are going through. You go into a hierarchical kitchen. I have a bigger issue with the hierarchy than with having too many men around. I don't mind men around, (laughs) as long as they look at me as being equal. The problem with a hierarchical kitchen is that, you know, there is a lot of aggression and it comes from the top, from the head chef, the sous chef, whoever is responsible for that service. The aggression then goes down the order. It never, you don't find, uh, you know, people at the lower end of the kitchen uh, being aggressive and abusive to each other. That aggression becomes racist and sexual and is generally bullying. And I think that men under pressure who feel that they are entitled to bully someone or be abusive need to go to therapy. <laughs> they should not be in the kitchen. Mm. Because I've, you know, I've worked in a very stressful environment in the kitchen and our kitchen is very, very small. It's very small, it's very compact because you know, when I designed the restaurant, uh, I you, never imagined. You were hoping 50 people yeah, might come. Yeah, I, I, thought, I was hoping 50 people would come. I never imagined an, a day, you know. We, when we started, we would have 9 to 10 people for lunch on Mondays. Now we have 85 to 90 people for lunch on a Monday. When most restaurants in Soho are closed. <laughs> closed are yes. closed because there's, nobody comes out to have lunch on a Monday. So everything has changed. It's just become really stressful. You never hear anyone raising their voice. And not having gone through the system, when I walk into a kitchen, I find it so difficult in normal kitchen when I see people being shouted at. And I just know this is unhelpful when you are so toxic. You know, it is a really difficult environment. And I'm so glad that I didn't have to go through this brutalization because it is actually not necessary. 
and I've sh- I've sh- you know people can see in my kitchen it's an open kitchen no one screams and shouts occasionally I'm screaming and shouting because I'm asking for tea <laughs> and I get zero service from the kitchen because they're so busy everyone just rolls their eyes at me because I keep saying can I have tea can I have tea till I'm booted out <laughs> but that's it this is the only drama that happens in my kitchen yeah. I ask for tea and I'm thrown out but it's it is I know I'm not having been through this I'm also not indebted to any male chef there is a huge uh, culture because it's such a small society women who have had particular troubles in certain kitchens do not want to name and shame because it jeopardizes their chances of getting a job in another kitchen who is friends with a chef who she had a problem with this is so toxic and this is the one of the reasons why i was asked to do a radio program uh, by the bbc i have six or seven friends who have faced terrible physical and sexual abuse by chefs even promising that i could change their identity they would not go on radio because it, they think it because will, it will jeopardize their, their chances friend. of getting a job there's also from a you know from an immigrant uh, you know person of color point of view often we've had to battle with our partners our parents to to you know to be allowed to work in a kitchen because you know they you come back at 11 o'clock at night smelling like ghee <laughs> and you know and a lot worse <laughs> and it's exhausting the money is poor uh, it's it's something that you do for passion mm. i know that if i came back one night and told my husband however liberal he is that you know someone You're did this to me he wouldn't let me go back to work the next yeah. day so a lot mm. of the silence has to do with you know this is the path you've taken you spent all this money in culinary school or you've done all these years of abuse no one wants to let go mm. if you talk everyone is terrified this is the end of their career this is why there is silence and this is why we have not had a me too movement in this country it cannot be a me too moment because the, i don't think there's a single woman who's who's brave enough to stand up but i keep telling all of them let's have a movement all of us who have suffered and all of us who have not suffered let us join together let us be that single voice and say you cannot abuse women in hospitality i'm i'm trying i'm hoping to get i i work very hard with women in other kitchens but yeah it is uh, i'm very privileged not to have to go through abuse and as i said as i was joking and i told this whole group of women if a man touched me against my consent he wouldn't stand up after this because consent and this is not because i'm a lawyer consent <laughs> is a very big thing yeah you cannot touch without consent mm. there's accidental touching yes that's fine mm. in a kitchen this happens mm. but where it is deliberate and it's mm. abusive and mm. it's uh, it is so snide and done to humiliate you and make you feel dirty this is not accidental touching well it's often about power rather than even if it's sexualized it's often not about the sexual part no. but it's the power bullying it, dynamic yeah it's about power and you know it it takes all kinds of you know forms uh from you know pu- putting them into the walk-in fridge to to demanding all kinds of things from them uh and this classic thing is you know i i've heard this from male chefs who are so ashamed saying you know when we started off in a new girl joined everybody would have bets who would make her cry first and for how long mm. wow that is so sad that these are the games being played in kitchens mm. when young girls come in they're 17 and 18 i went to a, a culinary school in a not a very well off part of london 
And these 16, 17 year olds told me what happened to them when they went for work experience. Horrible, horrible stuff. You know she's 16, you have children that age. Mm. How can you pick on her mm. when she's 16? But there are no barriers. It's incredible. If you're a girl, you come into a kitchen, you're fair game. If you're 60 or you're 16, it's just seen as someone who's coming, who maybe doesn't belong here. It really has to stop. And how, I was interested to hear you say that your, it sounds like your perspective is Me Too happened in restaurants in the States. Yes. And obviously it's not nearly over and done with, but it's a start. Yeah. You feel like it hasn't happened here to the same extent or maybe not at all. What do you think it was or how, how did suddenly people, particularly women, or it was just they had enough and couldn't take it anymore? Like why, why did that dynamic shift or is America a bigger marketplace so you could... Yes. You can take the risk. I think you can take the risk because the States is much bigger. America is a bigger space. This is a very, very, it's a very small pond uh, when it comes to hospitality. Everyone knows each other. And there's a lot of movement within kitchens, a staff moving from one place to the other. People talk. People carry stories. If you're seen as a troublemaker, you never work again. Mm. And, you know, I had someone working for me, a young girl, who had a terrible experience with uh, a chef in her first job, and she quit working. She became a private chef. So it's not that you give up, mm. but you leave the restaurant. So you lose, we lose these women. We lose these passionate women because something puts them off. And that's even fewer women who are now trying to be in professional kitchens. So, you know, they go into catering, they do supper clubs, they do the other options, which doesn't mean that they are at the, at the front line dealing with aggressive men. And that is another huge problem, that they women step back and step out. And we've lost the strong women who have gone on and done other things, you know. Street food, the street food culture in, in London is amazing. Mm. So many of the street food stalls are run by women. Mm. If you ask them, they will tell you this. They are here on the street because they're safe and they're in control and they have power. It is a lack of power, the helplessness, when you go into a kitchen which has hierarchy we had no hierarchy in our kitchen because I don't even know how to start. Mm. You know, everyone is on the same hourly wage. I get paid the same hourly wage as the kitchen porter, uh, who I think does the hardest job washing the pots. Mm. So, you know, how, how it's telling someone you value them less than yourself. Mm. It's unacceptable. Mm. But in kitchens that happens, there's a differential in payment. I have a problem with that. Women are not honored and paid as much. This happens in all professions, yeah. but in a kitchen environment, it's even more unacceptable because it's physical work. Mm. It's tough work. Uh, and then, you know, this is about being having to bend down and follow the rules and not being allowed to complain. There is no system set up in hospitality if you have a grievance. If you have a problem, you need to go to the same person who was part of the problem. And so do you think that where, where does the culture change, in your view, need to start? Do Is it in culinary schools, is it, I mean, the conversation to start, I think there's a group of women who had enough experience in cloud and a group of sympathetic men who agree and feel like, okay, we've just all going to decide within our industry that this is not okay and we need this cultural change. But without that epiphany, does it need to start in culinary schools or do you think it's more about finding ways I mean, would you really advocate that you want more women to do what you've done is just start their own restaurants and find their own way? I think women should take the path that they feel more, most at, at ease. 
uh, I was lucky. I was very fortunate to get the lease I did. I was fortunate to get the backing from my family in the end to open the restaurant, you know. I, I got a bank loan and half the money came from the bank and the other half is my husband's entire life savings. So, you know, I'm, I'm in a very good position. The reason why a lot of women who would like to open the restaurants is there's no funding for females. This is classic across the board, but there is no money available. If a female wants to open a restaurant, today at least some women can go and say, look at Asma, look at Dajani Express. It works. You know, you can invest in me. When I opened my restaurant, I was extremely lucky to get a bank loan. That was because the bank, all lots of women in the bank got together and gave me a loan. I had no credit history. Mm. So I went, when I went to meet all the males in the bank, the questions they asked me, I wasn't even sure what they were asking me. Mm. I didn't even know what a business plan was. Mm. So it's really hard. So A, you can't open restaurants so easily because landlords want to pick safe bets. Mm -hmm. They will pick men, invariably men with a track record, who have had other restaurants. You know, if a woman turned up who's never done something, you know, if just been a mom who has done other stuff, not in rest hospitality, the landlord will not give you the lease, no one will lend you money. That's one huge hurdle we have. We need to start from the other side where we can get a job and then we can get the skills and have, you know, on paper all the requisite, you know, uh, information to open your own restaurant. This may be an easier route for a lot of women. You know, I'm well, that's interesting you say that because when I've had conversations on this podcast about um, not gender specific, but, um, you know, racial and minority culture and about cultural appropriation and why that's an issue, the, the end comment was the same in terms of what do we do? It, it It's actually pretty simple, like what you're saying is access to capital. And then in some ways it becomes incumbent on probably as a start, a, a group of women to say, we are going to prioritize this because until we do, is a group of men really going to do that? Yeah, it's all about money. It is about money. We need money for female founders in hospitality. That is the bottom line. But till that happens, we need to strengthen the voices within the industry of women. And you know, I would have loved to have had more you know, Michelin star chefs uh, female mission star chefs and the kind of the the leaders of this industry talking about a recent uh, case of abuse of a male chef. I wrote this huge article. There was silence from all the women, and I think this is to do with again this whole culture of having come through the system where you know everybody, and it is about you know being hand in glove, uh, you know not wanting to criticize uh, you know someone who you know, and you know British are very bad at criticizing each other in any case. You know, they have this huge awkwardness about being awkward. But, you know, I, I think that, you know, for those of us who are, you know, fortunately or unfortunately not British yeah. and don't have these issues yeah. about raising our voices. Yeah, yeah. The, I tell women this all the time who I meet and who are in the industry. You know, you need a collective. If there's a collective of women, we can break down every door. We can shatter the ceiling as a collective. My strength, you know, and, you know, it could be I can help someone with my strength. My weaknesses, someone else can help me. As a collective, we can bring down this entire, I use the word and I mean it, the patriarchy in the hospitality industry in this country. But we need to unite. And that is happening. Behind all of this, the last few months, I've been working with lots of women. There's a lot of great initiatives coming up. One of them is Hospitality Speaks, where they're trying to set up a kind of, you know, uh, an agenda of how we actually change the culture in restaurants. 
things are happening. Things are happening because I think that you know the collective works. The collective works because you can never win these battles alone. Uh, you're against a system which is very entrenched, and you're against very powerful forces. But I'm absolutely convinced we can shatter all of this if we actually get together. You definitely sound like a revolutionary, which is very exciting. So I wanted to ask you then, we talked about, or I talked about in the intro, about you're on a mission. And this, I think, relates more to your mission. So I wanted to know, I mean, partly you maybe explained already what's next. But is that where you're more driven? Then are there going to be 24 Darjeeling Express or another higher-end restaurants? Or do you feel like this is sort of it and you're actually more... The, the next phase for you is is the women's collective to change the industry. It is a women's collective. I, I can't see, you know, of course, after Chef's Table, I was inundated with the offers and a lot of money being offered to me to do pop-ups, to, to license my restaurant name uh, from Bahrain to Tokyo. And, but that's not me. I, you know, I, I come from a royal family, you know, when you know, women in my family die, you, you're buried under the mango grove. Someone writes, a, you know, two lines of poems for you on a marble headstone. And I told my father, tell the imam to write it down now. And when I die, I want to be accessible. I want women to be able to come to my grave and say, I changed their lives. Because this is what I want. I want to be in my lifetime. I want to be a disruptor of how the society works when it comes to how women are treated in hospitality. If I was, you know, I'm not taking money to my grave. And I don't, so this, I also often hesitate to call Daji Express a business. <laughs> it's not. It's a social movement. I see myself, this is all about politics. For me, food is about politics and power. And predominantly, it is about power. I need to get power back to our women, all of us. Because power is where the problem starts. If you have power, you can set the rules. We need to set the rules. But for that, we need to become powerful. So my aim right now is to become a powerful voice. And I'm grateful for the opportunity that you, you have come here <laughs> to allow me to reach out to more people yeah. who will hear my voice, but also hear my accent. Mm. I am from the East and the West. Mm. I am that voice which understands two cultures. Mm. I'm at peace with who I am. You know, and I don't need someone else to draw lines around me and say, you are an immigrant, you're a Muslim, you're a woman. I'll be anything I want to be mm. because that's where my power comes from. Mm. So whenever I need to be something else, I will be because at the end of it, I want to be in control and make the decisions and help other people up because I will only rise depending on how many people I raise. I want to get up there, but I want to get up there with everybody. I hear the warrior in your in your voice, and and I think that your strength is very uh, in, infectious and in in a good way. So, given that whole conversation, I'm really interested in what your Julia moment is going to be. We're going to do that in a minute. And uh, for listeners, do you think gender in the kitchen shouldn't be an issue, or should we foster more opportunities, or do we need a revolution for women for more women to become professional chefs and restaurants? Let us know what you think. Let us know if you want to join Ozma's movement. Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. So we're going to go to a quick break, and we'll be right back for Ozma to share her Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. And you know, Heritage Radio Network has thousands more. Hi, my name is Linda Palaccio, and I'm the host on A Taste of the Past here on HRN. 
Join us on a weekly journey through culinary history where we explore the when, where, what, and why of food throughout history. You can find A Taste of the Past wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's Immortal Words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Osmo, what's your Julia moment? It has to be the blowtorch. Because long ago, I saw this clip, which I was just going through uh, on, online. And I saw this highly elegant woman who I didn't know who she was. She used the blowtorch to get the skin off a tomato. And I thought, whoa, I love this person. And then I ended up watching all these videos. And it was just the casual grace and the strength and the utter confidence with which she spoke. And yeah, and her blowtorch skills are incredible. My greatest joy, I mean, I'm hoping someone, I'm turning 50 this year, please buy me a blowtorch. <laughs> because I just think, I told everybody, they said, oh my God, you're so much trouble in the kitchen, we don't want to give you a blowtorch. But I, <laughs> I, I, I want to do this. And I just love the fact that she, you know, she showed two very uh, safe ways to get the skin off a tomato. And then she burnt it with a blowtorch. <laughs> I love women like this, you know, because that's when you do the unexpected. And, you know, it's, you remember this for a long time. And I think that this is what we need to do. And this is what I want to do in my life as well. I was very inspired by that. I know something very trivial, you know, she did something, you know, but somehow you always associate men with blowtorches. This is a me- mechanical, something from outside the industry, an engineering tool. Mm-hmm. She bought it into the kitchen, her very elegant space, <laughs> looking beautiful. And she burnt this tomato. Ooh, I mean, I was like, I love this. So she brought the tools in of a very male uh, industry into her space. And she did it so beautifully. You know, the two worlds collided in that moment. And I love that. That is the best description of Julia and the blowtorch. You know, it's very popular. Um, there are plaques and things you can get that are quoting Julia saying every woman should have a, a blowtorch. But I think I think you've just tracked the whole meaning of why Julia's use of the blowtorch is so um, memorable and meaningful. And th- that was really lovely. Thank, th- thank you for uh, deconstructing the, the message behind the blowtorch. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us and sharing everything about your journey and your mission that you're on. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Please make sure to follow us on social media. As always, our handles are at Julia Child on Facebook, at Julia Child Foundation, all one word on Instagram, and at Julia Child JCF on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at T Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. To learn more about Ozma's restaurant in London, Darjeeling Express, or better yet, to book a table, go to darjeeling-express.com. Darjeeling, if you're not a big tea drinker, is D-A-R-J-E-E-L-I-N-G. Plan ahead. They book up months and months in advance. And if you can't make it to London, you can learn more about Asma and even get her recent cookbook, Asma's Indian Kitchen, featuring the restaurant's food, on asma-khan.com. It's A-S-M-A-K-H-A-N.com. You can also follow uh, many of Asma's exploits 
and the mission that she's on on social media. She's at Ozma underscore Con LDN on Twitter and Ozma Con London, all one word on Instagram. For the restaurant, it's at Darjeeling LDN on Twitter and Instagram and at Darjeeling Express on Facebook. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Please give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. We are on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available worldwide wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebrations happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.